Okay. Okay. So this is my first time in Be'er Miriam. Welcome. Thank you so much. Welcome. I, I, uh, I, I showed up and Sina Yakobian was, uh, was here with you. And I said to him outside, I said, teach me about the girls of Be'er Miriam. So he said, and I see it right away, he said, the girls here are very alive, a lot of positivity, a lot of enthusiasm, and they're real mavakshos. They really want to know. I said, that's so nice. And I, I came, I said, it's 8.30 at night, it's late. And one of the girls first said, no, we're, what do you mean? It's 8.30, we're so happy, we're so like up, positive. I'm exhausted, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I would love a 7.30 curfew. So, uh, I want to be on my phone the entire year. So I, I, just to talk for a couple of minutes, I try usually to start with something in the parsha, but then to talk about something for us that's real, that's going to move us in our lives. The passage in this week's parsha tells us, "Vatikach Miriam Hanavia Achos Aaron Esatov Biyada." Miriam, Aaron's sister, she took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women came after her with these tambourines and with dances. This is the Shira of Miriam. Miriam Anavia, when the Yamso splits. So she comes and she leads all the women with her tambourine and they all start dancing and they have their own beautiful song and their own beautiful record. There's a question. Where'd she get a tambourine from? So It's a good, obvious question. If you're crossing... The Yamsuf, and on the other end, you have a tambourine. Where'd you get a tambourine from? So listen what Rashi says. Unbelievable Rashi. Rashi says, Muvtachos. Listen to the words. Every word of Rashi is beautiful. Every word of Rashi is precious. Muvtachos. They were sure. Muvtachos, these, these righteous women of the generation, they were sure. They were headed out of Mitzrayim and they said, no doubt Hashem is going to perform unbelievable miracles. They said, we know unbelievable miracles are going to happen, so we're taking our tambourines with us, so that when they do, we'll be ready to play. That's what Rashi says, it's an unbelievable Rashi. But there's a question on this Rashi. How fast did Klal Yisrael need to leave Mitzrayim? Really fast. As fast as possible. Do you know the difference between how men pack and how women pack? Yes. Yeah, do you want to hear the difference? What was that? Men pack clothing, women pack possibilities. <laughs> I travel a lot all over the world. I can travel for two weeks in a carry-on. I'm not saying the clothing won't have to be incinerated by the end of the trip, but it's possible. When I pack, I have a list. I go, okay, t-shirts, socks, shirts, pants, finished. I see, I have five daughters. One of them is uh, expecting any day now I'm here, but Visha Tova, thank you, yeah. Mazel Tov soon. We're hoping for a healthy baby boy. I have five daughters. I see the way my daughters pack. If we go away for two days, my daughters come with suitcases. <laughs> and I see, you ever see, like, I know you've seen this. You know how you, like, lie out your clothing on the bed? Yeah. And it's like, who's going to make the cut and who's not going <laughs> to make the cut? So you're sitting there, you're going like, but what if we 
Like, what if we go out, like, somewhere nice? I need to be prepared. If you have more shoes than days that you're traveling, something is wrong. You understand? <laughs> this, is, this is the difference between the way that men and women pack. My mother, you know, I was very embarrassed of my mother growing up. I know they've come back in style, but when they weren't in style, my mother wore, like, a big fanny pack. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it was like the, uh, it was like Batman's utility belt. Like, every single thing was in there, like... Hey, mom, you have the cure for malaria? She's like, no problem. Here's a pill, you know? It's always like my mother had it in her bag. Because women pack just in case. Men pack the bare essentials. If you're leaving Mitzrayim in a hurry, do you take a tambourine with you? No. You don't take a tambourine with you. Yeah, if you're leaving Mitzrayim, if you're on the 49th level of Tumah, and one more minute, and you're toast, you're done, you're going to be in the 50th level of Tumah, you will not be able to leave Mitzrayim. You could imagine the husbands, you could see the picture, right? The husband's like, come on, Chatzai Salaylu, we gotta go, it's almost midnight. And they're going, just, I don't know how to fit the tambourine in, you know, like you're like standing on top of the luggage. What do you need a tambourine for? You Just in case. I know we're gonna need a tambourine. The husbands must have been killing themselves in that moment. Why'd they do it? It doesn't sound normal, it doesn't sound rational, it doesn't sound like, what is Rashi saying? They were so sure they were going to need it that they brought it. Imagine if you were leaving Auschwitz. It's not a joke, right? Imagine if you were leaving Auschwitz. Do you like sit there and go like, but I had some scraps I got to take with me? No, if you have the opportunity to leave Auschwitz, you run. Auschwitz was nothing compared to Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was 210 years of brutal slavery. Seven years of the Holocaust is a day in Mitzrayim. We have no idea. If you read the Midrash Chazal, if you read what the rabbis said about the whole, like, the crazy things, October 7th, it doesn't register on the Richter scale of what Mitzrayim was like. Now they have the opportunity to leave and they're, like, figuring out what to take. It, it sounds very, very strange. That's number one. I want to tell you an unbelievable medrash. This is a change-your-life medrash. Did you know that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the sea, he had a conversation with the sea before he created it? Have you ever heard this medrash? It's an unbelievable medrash. Hashem said, I'll create you on condition that you split when Klal Yisrael comes. The medrash says, let me see these souls. I'm not splitting until you tell me which souls they are. Hashem sows the souls of Klal Yisrael, the neshamas of Klal Yisrael. The sea says, whoa, those are incredible neshamas. I'll split for them. Now fast forward, and we're at the banks of the river, and the sea refuses to split. And the sea says, these are not the same neshamas that you showed me. These neshamas are gross. These neshamas are the neshamas of idolaters. Because Klal Yisrael spent 210 years in Mitzrayim. What were they doing? Halalo of the Avodazar, halalo of the Avodazar, the Malachim said. You, how could you save the Egyptians? They're both idolatrous. Neither one of them is better than the other. So Klal Yisrael, after 210 years in Mitzrayim, the sea could not recognize the soul of these Jews. So the sea said, I refuse to split. And then Moshe Rabbeinu brought the bones of Yosef, the Atzmos Yosef, and the sea split. Question is, what was in those bones of Yosef? I want to share with you something that to me is like everything that we're trying to do here this year in Eretz Yisrael, everything that we're trying to grow. You are not your lowest moments. I know that sounds like an easy thing to say, 
And I'm sure that right now, even as you heard it, a lot of girls said like, yeah, yeah, we're not our lowest moments. I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about that deeply. How often, when you think about your life, do you identify your life by your lowest possible moments? How often do you sit here and go, yeah, but you don't know who I really am. I'm really that girl that did fill in the blank. And yeah, Rabbi, you're coming and you're giving a big pump-up schmooze and you're saying that we're beautiful, wonderful, precious, neshamas of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but you don't know who I really am. That's called shame. There's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is a very healthy emotion. Guilt means, ugh, that behavior is not me. Guilt is, guilt is, I'm so much bigger than that. Shame means I'm unworthy of love and connection because of the Avera that I did. Take a moment. Everyone in this room suffers from shame, including myself. Take a moment and think about it. In your quote-unquote honest moments, which are not very honest at all, do you judge yourself by your lowest moments or by your highest moments? I guarantee you that everybody here on some level goes, but I'm always going to be that girl that did this. I'm always going to be that girl that grew up in this home. I'm always going to be that girl that grew up in this community. I'm defined in some ways by the moments that I'm least proud of. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you have shame, if you think you're unworthy of love and connection, you know what you do? You live a shameful life. Everybody lives out their inner paradigm. The way they see themselves is the way they behave. If you want to know how any girl in this seminary sees herself, it's very simple. Just look how she behaves. How she behaves tells you everything you need to know about the way that she believes she is. Not who she truly is, but the way that she believes that she is. Everyone lives out this sense of shame. And it's not true. The craziest part about shame is that it's false. It's wrong. It's a distorted way of seeing yourself. It's dangerous, and it needs to be confronted. So let's take a look at it. Are you actually, when you think about it, are you your lowest moment? Or, alternatively, is your lowest moment understandable? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying you should be proud of it. I just want to know if it's understandable. Take the girl that she was in high school. I'm not going to tell you what she did. You all can fill in the blank on your own. Take the girl that did something in high school that she's not proud of. What was she going through at that time? Did she do it by accident? Did she slip into that? Or, if you think about it, does her life make sense? Let's say she's in 10th grade. Let's say it's summer after 10th grade. That's the summer that all the bad things happen, right? It's the summer after 10th grade. You know what I'm talking about? It's facts. It's straight facts. Yeah? I know what facts means. I work in a boys yeshiva. I have all the language. At 9.15 tonight, I'm going to dip. Yeah? I know all the words. I could slide into DMs if I want to. I know how to swipe left and right. I'm very relevant. Yeah? Summer after 10th grade, what has she been through for the last two years? Do you remember when you were in elementary school and you had friends and you were, you like, were sure who your friends were? Yeah. And then you showed up to 9th grade and all of a sudden you had no friends? Yeah. yeah. And it's not because you changed, but because now you have to go through all the drama of 9th grade. I do not Yeah. No, isn't it crazy? Like, girls in high school, like, these are the best times. You get out of high school, you're like, oh my God, that was yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Ninth grade is really hard. 
And then it's like 10th grade, it's like, okay, I think I'm gaining my rhythm. And then 11th grade. Well, it's, that's a whole different story. <laughs> we're, we're, we're only going to summer after 10th grade just for a minute, right? So what happens? Summer after, summer after 10th grade, you're kind of lonely, no? You're kind of like still figuring it out. You're unsure of where you are. And now in that space of loneliness, in that space of a lack of belonging, in that space of I'm not really sure who I am, and now there's an opportunity to do an Aveira, but that Aveira is going to make you feel a little bit better about yourself. So you do it. And honestly, it does make you feel a little bit better about yourself, at least for a minute, right? And now you're sitting here and you're all from and you're bare Miriam and it's January and you're sitting there working on yourself and you're going, that, that girl, that 10th grade girl, I'll never, I can never undo that, right? Like, for the rest of my life, that's going to haunt me because that's who I really am. No, that's not who you really are. That's what you did in a moment of weakness, which was totally understandable. And anything that's understandable is forgivable. The secret of Judaism, which we need to proclaim every single day, because you need to knock it into your head, is Elokai Neshama Shanasatabi Tahori. God, the soul that you gave me is pure. Rebbe, how could you tell me the soul you gave me is pure? You don't know where I was last night. I didn't have a 7.30 curfew last night. I was able to go out to that place where they sell fruit during the day. Whatever you... <laughs> how could you tell me that I'm pure? Because you weren't present. There was a part of you that was present. There was something that happened that you weren't so proud of. But it's not really you. A Jew has to wake up every single day and say, I am not my lowest moments. When I was involved in that Avera, it was understandable, and anything that's understandable is forgivable, but my soul never, not once, not even for a moment, participated in that Avera. The secret of Judaism is that shame is wrong. It's understandable and it's human, but it's wrong. It's factually incorrect. How could you say, I am my lowest moment, when the true you never even participated in the lowest moment? In the moment that you were doing that Aveira, the true you, which is not the part of you that did the Aveira, it's the godly soul inside of every one of us, the true you was sitting there going, don't do this, you're bigger than this. You ever have a moment where you're about to do something and you go, don't do it, and then you actually literally say to that voice, shut up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? What was the voice that came up? That was the you. The other voice was the part. I can't do this right now. I have a desperate need to do this Aveira. Understandable. I'm not saying it's right, but it's understandable. But you never participated for one moment in that Aveira. You remain pure. You know how many people are walking around in a state of disconnection? Not because they're disconnected, but because they believe they're disconnected? It's the craziest thing. Imagine if this light said, I don't believe in light. You would say to the light bulb, what do you mean? You're shining right now. When a Yid comes over and says, Rebbe, I feel disconnected, you go, how could you feel disconnected? You're shining in this moment. Even the fact that you're coming to your teachers, that you're coming to your Abayim and saying, I feel disconnected. What is that? Connection. That's the connection. It's the part of you that desires connection because it represents the truest form of you. But I can never undo the thing that I did. Okay, but why? Like, I, girls ask, this is a common question that comes up. What do I do when I'm dating, though? Like, do I have to tell him? I'm going to tell you a secret. I, I married my wife, Baruch Hashem, 22 years ago now, Yeah. When we were dating, it never came up. I'm going to admit it. I'm going to say it right here in public. It never came up what age I was toilet trained. Never came up. Could you imagine? It never came up. How could it be that my wife didn't ask me, no, when were you toilet trained? You know why? Because it's so not a part of my life. 
Yes, there was a time in everybody's life when we wore diapers. But could you imagine if you were sitting here in Bar Miriam going, like, walking over to, like, Mrs. Arbach or whoever and going, like, can we talk privately? You know what I'm saying? You know that, by the way, that's what it sounds like, at least to me, when you go, can we talk privately? Like that, you know, it has that tone, that cadence. Can we talk privately? You go into her office, you close the door, and you, like, start bawling, and you go, for a year and a half, I had to be in diapers. <laughs> the craziest thing, right? Okay, so then why are you doing it with the Avera that you did when you were 16? As if your 16-year-old self is any different. It was only because there's a recency bias. It's only because, like, it was two years ago, or it was two weeks ago. But it was two weeks ago. It was two years ago. What are you talking about? You are pure. You are connected. The part of you that went into the office to have that meeting is the true you. So this is what happened. I'm going to say a thing that's not going to be politically correct, but I feel I have to say it because it's on my heart. Claudia yourselves at the banks of the river, and the Yamsuf looks at it and says, I don't recognize these souls. For 210 years, these people have been serving Avodah I don't recognize them. How many people in the room, don't raise your hand and don't comment, I don't want there to be any Lashonara. How many people here have met people in their life that can't see past a person's actions? That when they look at you, they define you, by your worst possible moment. They go, these, these are Balei Avodazara. These are not the girls. These are Balei Avodazara. We're not taking these girls. These are Balei Avodazara. The sea won't split for people like that because the sea judges them by their outside. And a lot of us have had that experience in our life. People that look and all they can see is the negative. And by the way, I'm going to tell you a secret. It says much more about them than it does about you. If you're someone that could only see somebody based on their actions, that's because you can only you see yourself based on your actions. You're not in touch with the true you, so you can't be in touch with another person's you. So the sea said, yeah, I'll split for these holy souls, but these people I would never split for. Until Moshe Rabbeinu bought the Atzmas Yosef. Until Moshe Rabbeinu brought the bones of Yosef. Who was Yosef Atzadik? So we talk about Yosef Atzadik like he was Yosef Atzadik, right? He ran away from the wife of Potiphar. He was unbelievable. But when you actually learn the Gemaras, you know he was in the middle of doing the Avera? We don't talk about that. We don't, he ran away. But when you actually learn the Gemaras, he was in the middle of doing the Aveir with, with Asia Potiphar. But you know what his godless was? That he left. That he said, I'm not this guy. He tapped into his essence and he ran into the streets. He said, I don't care what the penalty is. I'm not, I'm not doing this. This is not me. His essence, his atzamot, his bones, his essence came up. So when the sea saw the bones of Yosef, the sea said, ah, it's my bad. It's my error. I was looking at them based on their actions. I forgot to look at their essence. And then the sea saw the precious souls that he saw at the very beginning of creation, and the sea split. Now, girls, I have a question for you. Do we need to know this? Do we need to know what the sea thinks of a Jewish soul? We don't care what the sea thinks of a Jewish soul. So I'm going to tell you the deeper shot. You ready for this? It had nothing to do with the sea. It had everything to do with the way that we looked at ourselves when we were on the banks of the river. You want a gift? Here's a gift. Miracles happen for those that believe they're worthy of the miraculous. That's a gift. Miracles happen for those that believe they're worthy of the miraculous. There are girls walking around and they say, I'm not worthy. So you know what they get in their life? They get unworthiness. You want to have an awesome family? It's a very simple thing. If you believe that you are worthy of having an awesome family, you will attract awesome people into your life. And if you believe you're a piece of garbage, you'll attract garbage into your life. 
It's a very simple rule. Look around. You'll see it all over the place. People that believe in themselves are powerhouses. They just somehow, people go, I don't know how it happens. Somehow they attract it. It's not, this is not rocket science. If you believe you're worthy of the miraculous, the miracles will happen. You know, Claudius was standing on the banks of the river. You know why the sea didn't split? Because they said, why would the sea split for us? We've been so bad for so long. Why would God ever do this for us? And then when they saw the bones of Yosef, they remembered about themselves. It's nothing to do with the sea. The sea is a metaphor. They looked at the Atmos Yosef and they said, right, that's who we really are. And then the sea split. Everybody in this room, you have a choice of how to narrate your life, including myself. We all have a choice of how to narrate our life. You could say, I narrate my life, and I don't know why, I keep attracting garbage. You're choosing that voice. You could change your narration. And I, I, I don't imagine any of you follow football, but can I tell you something incredible? I, I, a couple of years, I don't follow football anymore. I'm, I'm finished with all sports except for basketball. I can't tell you anything about baseball, basketball, or fo baseball, football, or hockey, but I can tell you everything about basketball. But there's a player in football who's one of the great running backs in the NFL right now. His name is Derek Henry, and his nickname is King Henry. And King Henry, he's had this nickname since high school. He's a beast. He like he's an incredible football player, and at one of the games, he came over to the sidelines after the game, and one of the fans gave him a crown. And he's walking around after the game in the locker room with this eight-dollar Amazon crown on his head, and it became a thing. After they win a game, he walks around with the crown. Girls, you know what that means? That means that Derrick Henry, before a game, packs a crown into his bag. You can imagine that? Imagine, here is this multi-millionaire, unbelievable NFL quarterback. What is he packing? His socks, his shoes, his underwear, helmet, the whole nine yards, and his stinking $8 Amazon crown. You know why you pack a crown? You pack a crown because you say at the end of this game, when we win, I'm going to put the crown on my head. You know why Derrick Henry is as good as he is? Because he packs a crown. It's not the, people go, he's really good, so he wears a crown. Wrong. He wears a crown, that's why he's really good. He believes at the end of this game, I'm going to wear a crown, so I have to pack it. Mamela, he wins the game. Anyone here ever like, uh, like visualize themselves like winning something? Yeah? Like you could see it, like before a game, you could see, anyone here ever play sports in high school? Yeah. yeah, you play sports in high school. What'd you play? Me? Yeah. Okay, great. For who? For which team? Valley I know Valley Torah. Rabbi Stolberger sleeps there. Yeah, I know the Valley. I'm holding in the Valley. I'm holding in the Machlokas. If, if the Valley is better, or the city is better. I'm holding in it all. The city. The city is much better. Pasha, the city is better. But Valley people don't like to hear that. That's that's why the Eula chant by the basketball games is "You live in the Valley." That's what the. Uh... Okay, so when you played ball, what position did you play? It's positionless basketball over there in Valley Total, yeah? So girls weren't like that. They weren't as into it as you were. Okay, so did you ever see yourself at the end of the game? Did you ever like just imagine yourself with time running out and you hit that big shot? Did you ever have that daydream? Can you come with me on this one in front of a whole group of people? It's not that hard to go, yeah, I was daydreaming every day. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Yeah, no, for sure, I'm with you. <laughs> There, there's something 
I had this all the time in high school. I just sat there, like, imagining these moments and imagining myself victorious in these moments. Did you ever have a moment that you imagined and you're, like, not sure if you could do it? A lot of us don't realize visualization is a real part of success. If you visualize failure, you're failure. If you visualize you're successful, you're successful. If you pack a crown, it happens. If you don't pack a crown, it doesn't happen. There's a gift that we can give to our children. We can teach our children that they're awesome. Do you know um, Do you know how many great people are great because their parents told them they were great always? The Rosh Hashiva of Mivasaret is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> It's almost like if I said, uh, you should be Zohar all to have a beautiful Shidduch. Amen! Now we know which one means more. <laughs> Rashiva Mivasar is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my entire life. He himself was a lawyer for one of the top five law firms in New York. And he was worked for a company called Wild Gotchel. You have to be very, very smart to work for Wild Gotchel. And he was fast-tracked to make partner, and actually he left. He, he quit. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to learn in Kolo. And he moved to Eretz and he learned in Kolo. And the law firm that he worked at said, you're crazy. Like, you're just having a midlife crisis. Nobody leaves this. You're making a million bucks by the time you're 30. So he said, well, I'm not doing anything in the summers. You want me to work for you as a lawyer in the summer? So he worked in the summers, and he made himself enough money in the summer to support himself an entire year while he was learning in Kolo. Wow. Eventually, he went from being in the Kolo to being a Sholomeshev in the Yeshiva to being a Rebbe, and now he's the Rosh Hashiva. And he seems to me to be capable of doing anything that he wants. He's a ridiculous ball player. Even now in his late 50s, he still plays ball with the guys, and he's still competitive. I once asked him, like, where do you get this confidence to do this from? Where do you get the confidence to pack a crown? Because wherever he goes, he's packing a crown. So you know what he told me? His mother. His mother had this, his mother passed away a couple years ago. He said, in his mother's eyes, he could push it, do no wrong. You know, when you have a mother who believes in you like that, do you know what it gives you? It gives you the capacity to see yourself as awesome. And if you see yourself as awesome, then you will be awesome. That's why the Hebrew word for a womb is makar, right? Like the rechem is the makar, is the source of all things. And makar is the same gematria as ratzon, desire. You want to see people who are on fire, alive, with will, with desire? You know where they got it from? They got it from a mother who had irrational levels of belief in themselves. It's an unbelievable thing when you meet people who know how to love someone into being. It's the most incredible gift. There's a, uh, a principal in the five. Anyone here from the five towns? Where are you from? Which town? Northwood Mayor. Northwood Mayor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm from Lawrence. I count Woodmere. I barely count Northwood Mayor. I count. Where'd you go to elementary school? Hafter. Perfect. I got thrown out of Hafter in fifth oh. grade. <laughs> <laughs> It's a schooler for becoming a Rebbe if you get expelled from Hafter. <laughs> I know a tremendous amount of Talmidei Chachamim that got thrown out of Hafter. Wow. Did you make it through? Yes, I did. Chaval for you. <laughs> Where'd you go to high school? Pink. Ah, so Nikki, at least I'm Nikki, my old yeah. friend. Usually he was a great basketball oh, player. Yeah. Back yeah. Rabbi Ismach, Rabbi Islam Nikki, oh, Mrs. Nathan. Yeah, I'm holding, yeah? Really? I was Mrs. Nathan's next door neighbor. What? In Farakway? In Farakway, before we moved to Lawrence, yeah. Rabbi Nathan Oliver Shalom was one of the most special people I've ever met in my entire life. Talk about someone who knew how to love people into being. The Nathans have this capacity to see people in the most beautiful way. Richie Altaby is the principal now of Halb Elementary School. 
Years ago, he was the director of a camp called Simcha Day Camp. Anyone here know Simcha Day yeah. Camp in the Five Towns? Simcha Day Camp used to have over a thousand kids. Richie Altavi, one summer, he hired two guys to work in the equipment shack. I don't know if you know how camps work, but you can always tell what the camp thinks of someone based on the job they give them. <laughs> so the way it works is like this. If you're a counselor, that means we think you're capable of not abusing little children for a summer. <laughs> If you're a lifeguard, it means you can only interact with kids in the water and only for a short amount of time. If you're a waiter, it means you can't be anywhere near children, but will allow you to bring food to them. Yeah. If you run the camp magazine, it means you have no social skills, but you're capable of writing about people who do things. And if you work in the equipment shack, <laughs> oy, there's no other better way to put it. That was perfectly the oy is the only way to put it. So Richie out to, out to be hired two guys to work in the equipment shack and these guys were the biggest stoners in camp And the equipment shack was this metal box and they would hot box it You know what I'm saying? Like, like you open it up and there's smoke billowing out of it And I'm sitting there going like and this equipment shack is in the middle of campus And these guys were sneaking off behind the gym and I went over to Richie and I was like Why did you hire these guys? Like what are you doing? And I remember he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world, and he was right. And he goes, what's the problem with hiring them? I'm like, I don't know if they're going to have a bad influence on other people in the camp. He goes, so what would you have wanted me to say to the people that once upon a time called me about you? Whoa. I was like, you're right. <laughs> and I left, and I felt really stupid. Yeah. But how amazing is it that there are people in the world that in a kind way, he was very kind, because he could have dunked on me much harder. But in a kind way, he said to me, really? You're going to look at those kids and say, oh, they have Odezara? What about you? It, it, it's a tragedy when you have adults that don't remember what it was like to be 16 years old. You know Rav Moshe Weinberger, Shlita, the Rav Vesh Kodesh in Woodmere? Somebody once told me that Rav Weinberger's godless is that he never forgot what it was like to be 16. And the reason that his words are so powerful and so profound is not only because his Torah is so beautiful, but because he's speaking to the 16-year-old inside of all of us. And it works. We need to be muftachos. You know what muftachos means? Muftachos doesn't mean that they were sure that it was going to happen. They weren't so from. That's not what it is. That's not what, that's not what Rashi means. Rashi doesn't mean that these girls were the girls who were like shuckling and having a seizure while they were davening, you know. <laughs> One day you're going to have to explain to me, girls, why you daven like this. I don't understand for the life of me why, why girls daven like this. I don't, I don't understand this move. The, the, <laughs> I, I, get the, I, I understand the guy, the guy thing, the, like, the workout davening, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I don't understand the girl one. But I, one I one time dated a girl. I knew she was very from because there was a tremendous amount of makeup in her sitter. So it had all rubbed off from the tears that she was crying. She was way too from for me, but... Muftachos doesn't mean these girls were the frumest girls. That's not what it means. Muftachos means that they were taught to be sure. You can parent children into believing in themselves. That's a gift that you can give to someone. Look at the words of Rashi. Muftachos They were raised to have emuna. It was in their bones. They were growing up their entire lives. You know what? Their mothers and their mothers before them and their mothers before them told them every night before they go to bed. Of course we're worthy of salvation. When the time comes, bring a tambourine, because it's going to be awesome. They weren't the frumest girls, 
They were the girls that were raised to think we are not slaves. I'll finish with a, uh, with a beautiful story that I just heard yesterday from my dear friend Rav Yaakov Klein. Those of you heard of Rav Yaakov Klein? Get on the Rav Yaakov Klein train. It's leaving the station, but it's, it's an awesome train to be on. You've got to get on it. Rav Yaakov Klein told, told over a story about a, a couple in the 1700s from Morocco. Yosef and Rachel. They were very, very poor, and they lived in the mountains in Morocco. And uh, it came time, the family started to grow, and they could no longer live in the mountains in Morocco. So they said, what are we going to do to make farness ourselves? What are we going to do to make some money so that we could live, so that we could raise our family? And Yosef said, I have a cousin who lives in the city. So he said, I'm going to send a message to my cousin to see if my cousin will give us a job. My cousin is a man of some means. He sends a letter, and a letter comes back and says, yes, come to the city. I'm going to have a job for you. I'm going to set you up. We're going to give you an apartment, a place to live. These people were, they were mountaineers. They were living in a hut in the mountains. They had never lived in the city, and certainly had never lived in an apartment. And they traveled all the way to the city, and they were very overwhelmed by the hustle and bustle of the city. And they came to the apartment, and the cousin is there, and he says, I'm going to set you up, and it's going to be amazing. You're going to work for me. But they had all their belongings. They had some meager clothing. They didn't have much. They had some, you know, a little bit of things. And the apartment was unfurnished. So Yosef said to the, to the cousin, he said, maybe you could find us a place to like put our clothing? He said, no problem. When you come home today, there's going to be a place to hang your clothing. And Yosef went, and Rachel went into the shuk, and they went their separate ways. He went to buy some things, she went to buy some things. And Yosef is in the shuk in the Moroccan city, and he sees all these incredible guys. Tamide Chachamim, muscular men, wealthy people, and the entire time Yosef is like looking at himself going like, I, I just feel so badly about myself, like Rachel deserves so much better than me. And Rachel was in the shuk, and she's having the same exact experience. She, they were in the mountains, who you see in the mountains already, everybody in the mountains is a schlep. She sees the women wearing designer clothing, and she sees these very righteous women, and she's saying Yosef deserves somebody much, much better than me. And Yosef comes home, and when he comes home, he sees, right as he walks into the door, he opens up the door to his apartment, and he sees the most incredible man. An honest man, a righteous man, a shining face, a hadras panim. He says, I can't believe Rachel replaced me. I know we're in this amazing neighborhood with all these amazing people, but I can't believe I was replaced. So he ran running to the rub of the city. And he said, I just arrived here. I don't know where else to turn. But, but I, I, I can't believe she replaced me already, but it's this amazing guy. And the Rav is sitting there, he's trying to empathize with him, and he's like, wow, that's crazy. I'm going to try to look into this, see what happens. And Yosef leaves, and he's all distraught. Rachel, in the meantime, comes home, and she walks in, and she sees the most beautiful woman standing there, right there, and she's like, oh my gosh. I can't believe Yosef replaced me. He found this incredible woman already. I thought we loved each other. We've been together for so long, but, but now he just replaced me just like that. And she runs to the rub of the city, and she says to the rub of the city, it's a crazy thing. I just walked home. There's a beautiful woman in my house. And the rub already realizes something is going on because that's not a normal thing to happen. Yosef says that Rachel replaced him. Rachel says that Yosef replaced him. So he says, I'm going to go check this out for myself. So he walks into the house. And as soon as he opens the door, he sees the most saintly figure ever. A long white beard and a really just shining person. And the Rav turns around to Yosef and Rachel and he goes, 
It's a mirror. The nimshal is very beautiful. Yosef and Rachel had never seen a mirror before. They were in the mountains. They saw on the outside all these beautiful people, but the only people they didn't see was themselves. So Yosef walks in and he sees this shining person and he goes, it can't be me. She must have replaced me. Rachel walks in she sees this shining person. She says, it can't be me. He must have replaced me. But we all need a mirror like that in our lives. Every one of us needs to be a mirror for others and we need someone to be a mirror for us. Someone that when they look at us, they see us with kindness and compassion, with positivity and with the nitzots of who we truly are. Someone who tells us you are worthy of the miraculous and then Be'ezus Hashem, the miraculous will come. Amen. Okay, girls, have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you.